0: Some days become inflection points. Think of last Thursday, when U.S. equities had their worst day since 1987. It was a moment that we won't soon forget. And we'll return to that story on this podcast soon. But today we're going back to 2008, to September 15th, the day that investment bank Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy, which sent shockwaves felt in financial centers around the world.
1: It doesn't look much like a bank, but today Downing Street, and so we the taxpayers, have become the biggest shareholders in these high street names. It's also a huge investment in the country's future. After Lehman collapsed in September 2008, UK banks came under huge pressure, almost... Every day there were rumours that a bank was in trouble or struggling, bank shares fell dramatically. So by sort of mid-October, the UK government decided to step in. To bolster confidence in the banking system, the government forced the banks to drastically increase their reserves by buying shares in them using taxpayers' money. And this was the sort of so-called bailout weekend of the 11th and 12th of October, By then, the UK government had given the banks an idea of how much capital they needed to raise. The only buyer of bank shares was going to be the UK taxpayer. And at the end of that weekend, uh, the UK government injected £37 billion into three UK banks. That was HBOS, Lloyds and also Royal Bank of Scotland. Then there was Barclays. Barclays escaped that. Barclays didn't go into the Treasury and they basically told the market on the 13th of October that Barclays would not be accepting UK government capital, it would be raising capital itself.
0: This is Behind the Money. I'm Amy Keane. Barclays would end up raising more than £11 billion of outside investment to help save the bank at the height of the financial crisis. On this episode, the FT's Caroline Bidham and Jane Croft on the ensuing investigation and criminal trial into how the bankers raise the funds, and whether UK authorities have the ability to prosecute white-collar crime at the country's biggest institutions. Our story begins in 2007 on a yacht in Sardinia with a Barclays banker, Roger Jenkins. Here's Caroline.
2: So Roger was one of the best earning bankers in the UK at the time. He was dubbed Big Dog by his colleagues. And that kind of gives you an idea of just how important he was. He'd risen through the ranks and was head of this rather controversial unit that was known for um, avoiding tax, let's say, or being creative in terms of the tax that it advised its clients to pay. And on this yacht,
0: Roger met Sheikh Hamad bin Jassim bin Jabir
2: al-Thani, the prime minister of Qatar at the time. He was quite the kingmaker. If you wanted anything doing in Qatar, you had to speak to Sheikh Hamad. There was a party, a dinner that was hosted by an Italian industrialist And both Roger and Sheikh Hamad both happened to be in Sardinia at the time and were both invited to this particular dinner on the yacht. And it's one of those chance meetings that happens all the time in Sardinia. That's what Sardinia is known for, being a playground of the rich and famous and powerful. But this one happened to be more important than most.
0: Now, Roger Jenkins was the head of Barclays Middle East unit, and he was focused on finding new clients and investors in the region. So his relationship with the prime minister of Qatar was most opportune.
2: Sheikh Hamad bin Jassim bin Jabir al Thani was the chairman of the Gulf state's very powerful sovereign wealth fund. Um, back in 2007, early 2008, SWFs were really the driving force behind a lot of investment around the world, particularly sovereign wealth funds from uh, nations such as Qatar that are sitting on a whole lot of natural resources money that has to be invested somehow. So having a personal relationship with the prime minister of one of these countries, who also, by the way, is the chairman of that sovereign wealth fund, clearly I think Roger Jenkins was seeing dollar signs.
0: And if we fast forward about nine months after this chance meeting, Barclays' need for this kind of money would become more acute. In March of 2008, investment bank Bear Stearns would collapse, triggering concern throughout the market and ultimately leading to a full-blown financial crisis.
2: Like a lot of its rivals, Barclays felt that it had to raise its capital. And so a way of doing that was tapping institutional investors and also new investors such as sovereign wealth funds as a way not only to get more money into the bank to make it more financially sound, but also as a way of embedding this sort of strategic relationship with sovereign wealth funds.
0: In the summer of 2008, Barclays was able to raise £4.4 billion in a round that included Qatar Holding and the private investment vehicle of Sheikh Hamad. There were other sovereign wealth funds involved too.
2: And then we see throughout the summer of 2008 things going from bad to worse, capped with Lehman Brothers bankruptcy in September. I think Qatar suffered, even in one day, something like £400 million worth of value wiped from its investment just because of the wild swings in shares that were going on at that time.
1: Here's Jane. After Lehman collapsed the financial system basically went into absolute meltdown. The UK government put in place a scheme where it would buy or inject capital into the UK banks. The Royal Bank of Scotland was the worst bank affected. I mean, it ended up becoming 79% publicly owned. Lloyd's also had to take uh, substantial amounts of government money because it had bought HBOS, which was full of sort of toxic assets. Um, And then there's talk about Barclays, what was going to happen with Barclays. I think there was certainly people saying at the time, oh, Barclays doesn't want to take government money because obviously, you know, if it does take government money, the government's going to crack down on banker bonuses.
0: Bonuses are one thing. But government money also meant that Barclays would likely have been pressured to wind down its investment banking business. And in the wake of the financial crisis, while other banks were struggling to raise capital, Barclays was instead trying to propel itself into the top tier of investment banks. In fact, it bought Lehman Brothers' U.S. operations out of bankruptcy for just this reason. So a government bailout was not a particularly attractive option for Barclays and its senior executives. There's this moment that's seared into a city folklore of sorts, of John Varley, the CEO of Barclays at the time, sitting in his 31st floor office overlooking Canary Wharf
2: he had just got a a phone call from the the regulator, the Financial Services Authority, essentially informing him of what they thought the capital shortfall was that Barclays was facing. And he'd done a a quick back of the envelope calculation and it equated to about £13 billion. At the same time, there was this crack team of senior Barclays executives on their way to Doha and Qatar to meet Sheikh Hamad for dinner and discuss further investment opportunities. So it was this kind of confluence of events that all came together in October 2008. And essentially, I think they were tasked with getting the Qataris on board um, for whatever it took really to keep the bank out of UK government hands.
0: Remember that the bank had already raised £4.4 billion in June.
2: So by October 2008, uh, when Barclays is really up against it, they had, again, been trying to devise some kind of way that they could inject more capital into the bank. And that ultimately became the second fundraising at the end of October 2008.
0: In the second fundraising, the bank raised £6.8 billion. This time it was with more complex financial instruments, including capital notes and convertible shares. The fundraising was structured as a debt issuance, which meant some instruments would later be converted to equity for the investors. And as with the first fundraising, Qatar Holding, as well as Sheikh Hamad's personal investment vehicle, took part. So did Abu Dhabi Sovereign Wealth Fund. And it was Roger Jenkins, the head of the Middle East unit, who got Barclays the cash that it needed. Roger had actually had a heart attack that August, but he came back to the bank much earlier than expected in order to help with the second capital raising.
1: I mean, Roger Jenkins was promised to be compensated significantly as a result. He received a £25 million bonus for his help in negotiating the second capital raising. Um, And, you know, he was sending emails saying, like, you know, did this to save our arses and jobs.
0: Now, the bank also sold off a few of its own assets, all to make up for that £13 billion shortfall it needed to steer clear of a government bailout. And business continued.
2: Hi. Hi, how are you? Yeah, I
1: think I'm all right, thank you. What you're hearing is a recorded phone call from the
0: line um, of Barclays banker Richard Both. He was, at the time, a managing director at Barclays, the co-head of the bank's European Financial Institutions Group. Richard was on the team that helped structure the capital raisings, along with Roger Jenkins, who had the relationship with Qatar, and Tom Kolaris, who headed up the bank's Wealth and Investment Management Unit.
2: Around 2011, during uh, a routine supervisory visit, as all regulators do for big banks, um, they came across some emails that seemed actually a little bit suspicious. It started talking about these side deals and inducements to Qatar
0: And it was this discovery of emails, documents and phone calls that led to an almost decade-long investigation by regulators into something that looked a lot like fraud. Remember that Barclays had raised £4.4 billion at the height of the financial crisis from Qatar and other investors, including Sheikh Hamad himself. Now, investors are typically given a subscription fee for participating in a fundraising like this. And the amount of the fee is disclosed in the prospectus that goes to market so that everyone involved has the same information.
1: And all these people for investing were given a 1.5% fee. But it wasn't enough for Qatar. Initially, Qatar had wanted, I think, 375 and then it were beaten down to about 325 Under UK securities
2: law, all investors in these kind of capital market structures have to be paid the same and that's not just from a fairness point of view it's because if one investor is getting preferential treatment that the others don't know about then that might indicate that actually there's something wrong with the bank that they're sweetening a deal for some reason that they're not telling others that actually the others have a right to know before they put their money into the bank as well.
0: This is where the Barclays bankers started to get creative. They were keen on raising this capital with Qatar support, but the country was driving a hard bargain. The only sensitivity I've got about Quail is is this additional fee. Here's Chris Lucas, the finance director at Barclays in 2008, talking to Richard Both about how to make the deal work. Quail, which they reference in this call, is the name the bankers use to refer to its deal with Qatar. I mean, how do you feel about it? Well, I've, I've said to them, you know, absolutely, absolutely, we cannot have it as uh, something that we're offering everybody else. No. So therefore, it cannot, it cannot be, a, it cannot be linked to the transaction. No. But uh, but the outside of that, I can be pretty flexible. But finding a way of doing it, which is, uh, which you know, uh, passes the smell test, yeah.
1: is really the issue. Yeah.
0: Qatar was ultimately given a 3.25% commission fee, a bit more than double what everyone else involved in the capital raising received. Now, Barclays had to figure out how to pay the additional fee to Qatar.
2: After they'd kind of mulled various structures, um, like even a cash deposit or something like that, um, and decided against that, they'd come up with this idea of having some kind of side deal.
0: Um, I've sorted out a mechanism uh, with
1: Roger, um, and I've got it cleared in principle by Bob, Chris, and Steve Morse. Okay. Um, and so what it has to do with uh, is, is an advisory uh, relationship.
0: Tom Kolaris is talking about Bob Diamond, who sat on Barclays' board and would later become chief executive. He's also talking about Chris Lucas, the finance director, and a man named Steve Morse, who headed the bank's compliance department. He's talking about a so-called advisory services agreement with Qatar. The idea being that for Qatar's additional services of supposedly helping Barclays develop business in the region, the bank would pay Qatar 42 million pounds. In this moment, based on some of the tapes, it seems that um, Kalaris and Roger Jenkins have the support of the senior most figures at the bank.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's fair to say. I mean, Tom Kolaris, in his defense, did say that he actually went to the office of John Varley and told him about the demands that Qatar were putting in terms of the fee. And John Varley was the one who suggested a side agreement.
0: Here's Roger Jenkins and Richard both talking about how far up the chain this deal went. You know, right now, the directors are on the line. <laughs> and... Then you
1: and I are on the line.
0: <laughs> I prefer the former.
1: Well, they're on the line, right? Yep. And, and uh, I'm very surprised. What? I'm very surprised that John Varley, given his ethics,
0: is doing this. I think it's amazing. I'm not entirely sure that they'll sign off on it. But apparently it went to the board yesterday in a board update. And at this point, is the prospect of sort of uh, legal recourse or even possibly some of these bankers going to jail? Did that seem to play in anyone's mind?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a conversation which was between the deputy general counsel of the bank, Judith Shepherd, and Richard both. Um, and, you know, Richard's basically saying, are we going to have to demonstrate over time they provided these services? And Judith Shepard says, yes, if anyone challenges us. The top and bottom of it is they have to provide valuable services in exchange for that money, and there is no way around that.
0: Are we going to have to demonstrate over time that they have provided these services?
1: Unless anybody challenges us.
0: Like like any of the other investors?
1: Any of the other investors, the FSA, the UKLA,
0: the criminal authorities, the fraud unit.
1: I'm already feeling sick. (laughs) (laughs) There's no need to use all those words to make me feel sicker.
0: Well, I haven't even
1: finished my list. <laughs> Judith saying lots of people who would basically be on to them um, if basically these you know this was a fake agreement if this was not a genuine agreement.
2: Also at the same time, Barclays extended this advisory service agreement, the ASA, from June, and it felt that well because it's not a new deal, it's just an extension of an existing one. We don't really have to disclose it, but. Whilst in June, the ASA was for £42 million, in October, it was extended for far, far far more, for £280 million. In addition, Barclays also extended a $3 billion loan to the Ministry of Qatar just as the second fundraising was closing in October 2008. If you add up everything that Qatar got through the loan, through the ASA's, it gets you to about £2.4 billion. Now, that equates almost exactly to the equity Qatar first put in.
0: To Britain's serious fraud office, this looked a lot like fraud. The SFO alleged that Barclays and those involved in structuring the capital raisings had lied to the market. While they had disclosed the existence of a side agreement to the market during the first deal, they didn't disclose the amount of the fee that was paid. And the extension of the ASA wasn't disclosed to the market during the second fundraising in October. The SFO also alleged that the $3 billion loan the bank had extended to Qatar was illegal financial assistance. It was the most ambitious case the prosecutors had taken on, charging a corporation and bankers with a crime for the actions they took, during the financial
1: crisis, but it wasn't going to be simple. To basically prove a, a corporate is guilty of criminal activity, there has to be some sort of directing will and mind controlling the company. That's just how it, it's framed in English law prosecutors have to demonstrate the directing will of the mind of a company was involved in alleged criminality to prove a company liable. The problem is that this law um, is quite old and was you know really set up in the industrial revolution when companies were beginning to be formed and maybe consisted of one or two directors so it's very easy to find a controlling mind. Currently with kind of very complex global corporates it's often very difficult to find who is the directing will of mind.
0: When the SFO brought criminal charges against Barclays, they claimed that John Varley, who had been the chief executive during the crisis, was this directing mind. He knew about the side agreements and he had signed the director's responsibility letter in the market prospectus.
2: Up until this case, there was no particular legal definition of what a directing mind constituted, but it was kind of assumed that a group CEO, as John Varley was in 2008, would probably pass the hurdle
0: lawyers for the bank argued otherwise the presiding judge mr justice j
2: agreed with them mr justice j said no, he maintained that Mr Varley was not the directing mind of Barclays because although he was group CEO, he was answerable to the board and he was subject to the checks and balances that really any big sophisticated company operates. Now, the consequence of that ruling really can't be understated. Once Barclays as a corporate defendant went, so did a central pillar of the SFO's case, namely this $2 billion loan. The allegation previously being that essentially Barclays, through the individual bankers, lent Qatar the money to essentially reinvest in a sort of circular way back into Barclays, which was essentially an illegal propping up of their share price at a key time in 2008. So that pillar disappeared. So, what did
1: this SFO have to do to prepare for a retrial? When the charges against Barclays were scrubbed, the SFO was left with a much smaller case. The trial went forward so that Crown Court of the four individuals, including the Chief Executive John Varley, Um, and they were accused of of fraud charges relating to the two cash calls. Um, That trial uh, went ahead in January 2019 and when the prosecution closed its case the jury was dismissed and there was uh, a legal argument. Um, John Varley's lawyers argued that in fact it was Barclays that was making these representations to the market and so John Varley could not be held accountable for representations to the, the market in Barclays' name and in the legal argument argument. The barristers for the defendants argued that the case should be thrown out and the judge agreed. Mr Justice Jay dismissed the case, then the SFO appealed that decision to the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal ruled that John Varley, uh, there was insufficient evidence against him to, to proceed with the trial, but it did hold that a retrial should be held with the other three defendants.
2: I think the other thing to mention is that once Mr. Justice Jay had ruled on John Varley in a decision that was upheld by the Court of Appeal, you had this kind of Kafkaesque situation that, again, has much, much wider repercussions than this case alone, whereby the corporate couldn't be held liable for the actions of the chief executive. But on the the other hand, the chief executive couldn't be held accountable for the actions of the company. So the SFO went to court
0: again. The allegation was the same. Richard Both, Tom Kolaris and Roger Jenkins had lied to the market in the prospectus. But the SFO had to demonstrate how a different senior director
1: conspired to commit fraud. With John Varley out of the picture, the Serious Fraud Office emphasized the role of Chris Lucas, who was Barclay's ex-finance director. They said he was an alleged co-conspirator as a sort of central linchpin of the alleged conspiracy. The whole point about the the alleged conspiracy was it was all about representations to the market and obviously Chris Lucas as a board director had to sign a director's responsibility letter in that prospectus which which was given to the market and which the SFO alleged um, did not provide the full picture of the fundraising so Chris Lucas as a finance director they based a lot of the alleged conspiracy you know said that he was kind of uh, at the heart of this During the retrial, the presiding judge, Mr. Justice Popplewell,
0: told the jurors that they needed to think about the role Chris Lucas played.
2: The very first thing they were told by Mr. Justice Popplewell that they had to consider when they were deliberating their verdicts was the role of Chris Lucas. He was really key. Did Mr. Lucas ever intend that any services to the tune of £42 million initially and £322 million overall were ever going to be provided by Qatar to Barclays.
1: Now, Chris Lucas had been mentioned in the first trial, but he was too ill to stand trial. He was never charged. Um, He's kind of the absent defendant, really, in the case. There was some evidence presented relating to him. There were phone calls, tapes, emails, that sort of thing, But it was always going to be very difficult for the SFO to base a conspiracy case around an absent defendant. Um, That was always going to be very hard for them to prove. With Barclays the corporate, as
0: well as John Varley and Chris Lucas out of the picture, there were three bankers left. Roger Jenkins, Tom Kolaris and Richard Both. They stood for a retrial late last year over those charges of lying to the market.
2: The nub of the defendant's case is that the advisory services agreements were genuine and they did deliver services, or at least they were envisaged to deliver services and business opportunities for Barclays, and that both Barclays and Qatar benefited from them. Yes, the ASAs and the capital raisings were interdependent and one existed because of the other,
1: but actually that there's nothing illegal about that. And Roger Jenkins has actually in his defence told the trial you know the board knew about this it was signed off by the lawyers when he actually said something like i'm an employee of the bank you know the board consists of you know 15 to 20 people who approved this nine-figure asa in october To imply that I'm responsible for this document. He's made the point he's not the chief financial officer of the bank. He's not the chief lawyer of the bank. So, you know, he did make the point that everybody knew about it and that he thought it was a genuine agreement and a great opportunity for Barclays to expand its Middle Eastern business.
0: The retrial that began in October of last year concluded just a couple of weeks ago at the end of February.
1: The jury was sent out uh, on the 26th of February in the morning and we thought there would be several days because there are three defendants, it would been a five-month trial, but on Friday morning, the 28th of uh, February, at 10.30, we were all called into court very suddenly and told rights verdicts and then the jury foreman kind of came in with the jury and read out the not guilty verdicts, clean sweep of acquittals. It had actually taken the jury less than six hours to reach the verdicts that they did.
0: All told, the SFO spent seven years and £12.2 million investigating this case and bringing it to trial, all to see no one held responsible. It's been criticized for how it handled such a high-profile
1: case. There's some tactical errors that the SFO did which uh, didn't help it. Certainly, the SFO went after... Uh, Certainly one of the defendants, Richard Both, even after he'd been cleared by the financial regulator for the same conduct. So whilst uh, the SFO interviewed some Barclays lawyers, it decided not to charge any of the lawyers or call them as witnesses. So that meant that the defendants could easily say to the trial, you know, everything they did was with the, um, the blessing of external internal legal advice. The SFO didn't interview anyone from Qatar at all. Um, Didn't ask for a court order to obtain legal documents from the uh, Qatari lawyers, which were Latham and Watkins, which advised Qatar on the 2008 fundraising. You know, the SFO did make a lot of missteps in this case and pursued perhaps certain aspects of the case when perhaps it shouldn't have done.
0: Now, listening to this story, it's hard to believe that UK authorities have the capacity to prosecute
2: white collar crime. What should we make of this? So I guess this goes back to the so-called directing mind principle. And the SFO, quite apart from this case, has long argued that fraud laws in the UK need to be overhauled and that without them, it's really hamstrung in bringing complex cases at the highest level.
1: In fact, a couple of lawyers have said to me, it's almost impossible um, to find the controlling mind and to prove that mind is complicit with criminality. So Lisa Rosofsky, the director of the serious fraud office, told the BBC recently that in fraud cases, she's got to have the controlling mind of a company before she can get a company in the dock. Um, And she sort of said, you know, that's like, like something from the 1800s when mom and pop ran companies. That's not at all reflective of today's world. Barclays has not commented on the case that was dropped against the company in 2018, but the company has its own issues to deal with now although it's dealt with all the criminal case, um, there is still some outstanding matters for the bank. So it's facing uh, a lawsuit in the High Court um, with allegations of deceit against it by the firm founded by the businesswoman Amanda Staveley, who orchestrated Abu Dhabi's investment in the October 2008 fundraising, and that's due to go to trial later this year. Barclays also faced delayed regulatory scrutiny from the Financial Conduct Authority over the Qatari affair. And that's still ongoing at the moment as well. And um, its chief executive, Jess Staley, is uh, dealing with uh, questions at the moment about his uh, ties to Jeffrey Epstein, um, which is the subject of, of, of an investigation. So Barclays itself has its own issues to deal with at the moment.
0: Before we go, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know what you like about the show and what we might be able to improve. Please go to slash behind the money survey and fill out the survey for a chance to win a pair of Bose Quiet Comfort noise canceling headphones. You can also get in touch with us directly at behind the money at ft.com with any episode ideas or stories you think we should cover in future episodes. You can also reach me on Twitter. I'm at Amy Pekin. That's A I M E E P K E A N E. This episode was produced by Oluwakami Aladisui. We also had help from Fiona Simon. We'll be back with a new episode in a couple of weeks.